This episode of the podcast is being sponsored by Heshi from Borough Park, Lahagdal Torah If anybody has any comments, questions, or feedback, or to sponsor an episode or to support the show, please email me, svarimchatter at gmail.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Svarim Chatter podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Ravanit Rebetzin Chana Henkin, and we'll be discussing the new book that she edited uh, about of the collection of her son, uh, Rav Eitam Henkin, and his, it's just a collection of his articles and things that he wrote, and it's, ent- and it's been translated into English. It's entitled Studies in Halacha and Rabbinic History, and it was published by Magid Press. So thank you, Rabbanit Henkin, for joining me. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to discuss a marvelous book, which means the world to me. Okay, so let's start off. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, you hear from my English that although um, I've had the zechut of living in Eretz Israel for most of my life, I grew up in Spring Valley, New York. We made Aliyah 50 years ago, soon after we were married. Uh, my husband became the Rav Ezori of Amek Beit Sha'an. We lived in the development town of Beit Sha'an. Um, people used to say, how do they feel about you being an American in Beit Sha'an? And I would say, they haven't discovered I'm an American. Uh, I'm an Ashkenazi, and that's enough of a culture shock. So my husband was rap of the area, including Kibush Tzim and Moshavim, and originally reaching up to the Golan. Uh, I taught high school, Limude Kodesh. I was very much... So well, Rebetzin, I, I, uh, I did what Rebetzins do. I was involved in mikveh education for women. Um, that was a very, very central concern in my life. When we moved to Yerushalayim, I eventually started a center for women's learning. I'm Baruch Hashem, a mother, a grandmother. Um, uh, that, that's enough. Okay, so let's talk about uh, Yusan Ravetam. That's what we're here to discuss. His writings and his book. Uh, well, now this book, there's actually, there's been a, n- a number of other books as far and published from him, but we're talking about mainly this English one now. So let's first talk about him, talk a little bit, give a background, a uh, biography of him, if you will, before we get into his writings. Okay. Um, he was born in Yerushalayim. He grew up in Sioni schools. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the term, but the Chardal stream uh, uh, there's no parallel to it in the United States. Um, uh, he, um, he was his own person even then. Um, uh, he was, um, he spent a certain amount of time of his schooling at home as a result of mischievous acts uh, that he engaged in. And at that time, I was, uh, uh, I I was very, I was disappointed as a mother at this time. I am grateful, uh, deeply grateful to his teachers because for much of his time, when his rebbies would send him home, the result would be he'd curl up in bed with Sparim, and um, he, I, I, I can't give them credit for the fact that he was very much of an autodidact, but he was very much of an autodidact. He read everything that his father wrote. He read everything that his uh, his father, Zaidi, the great Rampenkin, wrote. Um, he, uh, he, he attended... He was in Hezder. He served in the army. He married very young. Hashem. He married when he was 20 years old. He had four children. He continued learning in a kolel for years. For years after he married, he began teaching. Um, eventually, he uh, uh, they settled in a yeshuv in Binyamin. Um, I would say his father was his primary rab, although he studied as well 
with Rav Dov Lior. He began publishing articles when he was around 21 years old. Um, sometime after that, he did a BA at the Open University. I remember he and our daughter-in-law, Nama Hashem Yikondama, and one or two of the children were sitting at our Shabbos table, and he told us, I, I don't know how old he was, maybe he was around 23, he told us he decided that he was going to do a PhD under um, uh, Professor David Asaf. And from that, we concluded that, oh, he's probably going to go to college because we didn't know that at that point. And um, he did his first two degrees at, at, at the Open University at night. It means you don't attend classes. You uh, you read that was built according to his midot. Uh, you read, you hand in papers. Um, um, and uh, eventually he was going to, um, uh, he was planning to, um, um, uh, as I said, to do a PhD. He, he, he was awarded um, Israel's top uh, fellowship for PhD. He was very happy about that because he realized he was gonna be able to sit in a room for three years without any worries about Parnassa and write about the Chafetz Chaim. Um, uh, Professor Asaf, when he visited us during Shiva, we didn't know him, said that when Eitam and he began corresponding, he was astounded because he found a wonderkind who was sitting in Kolel, who, um, who, without any academic training, who's writing and reasoning like a seasoned scholar. Um, so I, I, I would just say the last piece, in order to understand who our son was, I think you have to understand who his father was. My husband had been a graduate student at Columbia um, when from one day to the next, he said, you know, my Zadie is not going to live forever. And he dropped out of graduate school um, at not a, a bad university. Um, and um, he sat with his grandfather and learned with his Zadie for the next five years for the morning and um, after a little bit of a rest the afternoon as well. So um i i think if we if you want to know how ravi um developed i i think there was a a very strong genetic imprint going back to his father his grandfather and his his great grandfather so you mentioned how he used to read svarim and he obviously was reading all he can get. Um, but how did he yeah. first get involved in history and halacha? So we'll, we'll get into the book where he had just, there's a lot of writings on history and different time, different parts of history, which we'll discuss, but, and also writings on halacha. So how did he, I guess, how did he get into those two things specifically? No, no, you have it wrong. He, he wasn't involved in history. He was involved in rabbinic history. Um, he, he was familiar with history because he had this way of picking up random information and storing it in his mind. And, you know, like a jigsaw puzzle has hundreds of pieces or these really big jigsaw puzzles can have more than that. And the pieces look very similar to each other. And on the other hand, if you can figure out how to organize them, you can come up with a picture. Well, his mind um, just worked that way. He he picked up random pieces of information, and there emerged a razor sharp picture. What what he was doing was putting halacha into a context. Um, uh, it he wasn't involved in history. I mean, I presume if you asked him about Napoleon, so he could. Gus Napoleon, and you know, if you asked him, um, if if you wanted to discuss the Renaissance, I presume he would discuss the Renaissance with you. But that 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 was just like pieces of information that were picked up along 
along the journey. Um, what he wanted to understand is he wanted to see the gedolim. Halacha was the language in our house. I mean, when he spoke to his father, that they, you know, did you speak English or Hebrew? The answer is they spoke halacha. Um, and and uh, what he wanted to understand when is 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 um, how the gedolim were actually running their lives. Um, uh, no hagiography, no censorship, but a real picture that lets you understand. You know, I'm thinking as you asked me that question. Um, there's a difference between there's a difference between a Rosh Hashiva and a community rav. Um, if you put it into Lithuanian context, I, I don't mean the way we use the word Lithuanian in Israel today as you know, are you Hasidim or you Litaim? That's not what I mean. I mean, if you go back to the communities in Lithuania, um, uh, if, if you look at the the Arachasholchan versus the Mishnah uh, Bura, uh, the Arachasholchan was the Rav of a uh, of a community, whereas the 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 Chaim was a Rosh Hashiva. In our family, the this this goes back to Rav Henkin. Rav Henkin's atzal when he was in Russia, um, he, he he moved from one community to another because the authorities would never let him stay in one place for more than a year. So he spent a certain amount of time as a Rosh Hashiva, but he was essentially a rav, a rav of a. a of, of, of a community and that's the tradition in our family and so questions have a context and I think that's what our son wanted to get at what's the context for everything that I'm learning yeah and you mentioned you mentioned of Hankin of Yosef Elio Hankin and this is, an, this is a lengthy article in him and his history in this book that's, that was translated into English now um so, but the interesting thing about rabbinic history, like you say, that your son Rav Eitan was was interested in, what's interesting is how diverse it is. So he has there's in here there's an article about the Marami Rotenberg, and there's I mean, in others I think in other journals he's published other things in the Balitosis, and then you find him involved with this, this articles in here on the Musar movement, and then like there's a whole book been published from him on the Orch and he was into Mishnah Bura, so Chavz Chaim. So how just interestingly, usually you find people into into history, rabbinic history even, right? And they're into one time period. He was from the Bali Taisvis all the way until like you know later on. I mean, why was that? What was the reason for that? I, I, uh, someone once said to me, um, I think this was during his lifetime. He said. Your son, the one who wrote the Sefer about bugs, the one who's, you know, his field is bugs. I I, I laughed um, uh, because you could equally well um, uh, say the same thing about Shabbos. You could say the same thing about Eruvin. Um, We, I'll tell you a story. Um, It's it's a... um, yeah, it's a, it's it's a story with a certain amount of punch. Um, after Shiva, um, wait a minute, I'm going to take a drink of water. Sell this. After uh, Shiva, we finished both both families started Shiva in our own homes, and then we finished Shiva together in the couple's home. And after Shiva, my youngest daughter took took our son's um, computer to her house. And um, when they got home, she and her husband uh, plugged in the computer and uh, turned it on and they needed a code. And uh, they didn't know the code. And thanks to an adolescent prank, they figured out the code. Uh, This very much tells who our son was. And um, he and a friend, I I don't know how old they were, were they 14 years old? I I have no idea. Um, They 
painted the gematria of their names on a big sheet in big letters. They painted numbers. They painted the gematria on their home. And then they scaled the tallest structure in our neighborhood, which is over 12 stories high. It's a water tower. It's, you see it from all over. It was originally built um, uh, as a... Uh, how do you say it in English? Musve. It was um, it was built by the army to look like a water tower. It was a water tower, but it was intended as a lookout point to see the Jordanians on on Nebi Samuel. Anyway, it was very tall. They scaled this this structure. They hung up the gematria of their names. Of course, my son's mother had their parents had no idea of what those numbers up there meant and who hung it up there. And my kids knew, but our kids never told us. Um, so my daughter called up her brother and they discussed this together and they both said the code has to be that gematria. And thanks to that code, they were able to get into the computer. Uh, I'll tell you what we found there. We found a wealth of Torah, only a part of which has been published, including Chidushim um, on four simanim of Shulchan Um I'm talking about Chidushim included in Evan Ha'ezer. I, I, you tell me where he's coming from. I, I don't know. I, I I said there's a genetic imprint. He was interested in anything and everything. What characterizes the, the this new Sefer studies in Halacha and rabbinic history is it's all over the place and every single piece is a masterpiece. I, I um that's just the way his mind worked. He when he learned anything. He, he was organized. He was, he was deeply organized. Um, uh, my husband was once with his Zaydi when someone praised Rav Tzvi Pesach Frank Secher Tzadik Levracha and said he's organized. And my husband Zaydi Zatzal said, if he wasn't organized, he wouldn't have been a guy. Um, our our son was was deeply organized. Everything was there on the computer. In fact, he he had a fellowship somewhere, and people commented that he he always had his computer. He was listening with one ear, and he was involved in Torah with the other ear. And somehow he managed to speak up. Um, uh, coherently and and with words worthy of listening to. Um, his father was like that also, except it wasn't with the computer. His father, when he was in school, always had two books. He had his school book, and underneath he had whatever he was really dealing with. So I, 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 our son, Rav Eitam, was organized. And whenever he read anything, his mind was at work. He asked questions. Um, and you could never figure out what side he was going to take. You couldn't anticipate that. But when he learned through anything, the mind was working and the questions were there. And and he would go back to things. And and that's that from there, uh, articles uh, that he published developed. By the time he, um, by the time. Uh, the couple were murdered. He had written three books. Two of them were published uh, in his lifetime. One was published very shortly afterwards. He had he had thankfully seen the galleys. Um, that was his sefer, which is called the Eish Tamid on Hilchot Shabbat. And about a year afterwards, we were able to publish his uh, Sefer, on, um, which is a historical work on Aruch HaShulchan. The others were halachic works. Um, and, um, uh, you know, that's, 
that's what I can say. I, I, when you read in this book, the chapter on Bruria, you see he debunks the feminists because who think Hazal think that uh, the feminists would think that Hazal shot down Bruria because she was too smart. Then you read the article, the chapter on historical revisionism on part of Rev. Cook's Talmudim, and you say, ah, he's criticizing the Haredi. Then you read the next chapter on the disappearance of Rav Ariely, and you say, wait a minute, he's criticism, criticizing the Tzionim. And then it suddenly hits you. He's not accommodating his writing to an agenda. Um, um, he's refusing to distort the truth. And then you become mesmerized by the story. And and that that so one one other thing about him before we will talk a little bit about more about the book you just mentioned some of these fascinating articles another thing was that he wrote in such a wide variety of places so even while while he was alive he wrote you saw his articles were in many listeners are probably familiar with the journal Yeshurun and then there's the uh, Yeki you know the journal Yeshurun where he wrote it, and then Chitzig which is from Lakewood published from Lakewood then he also was writing in. Um, Hamayan, which is from right Shalavimish, even it was other other journals that I'm that I'm forgetting. And then he also he was working together with with what were these work he was working with Daniel Asher Kleiman on. Well, we could talk about that on Gurus Elio that Arachayim and and Yerdei came out from Rav Yosef Elio his writing. So he was kind of in like both worlds. It was like like it's a very unique thing. It's even wider than that. He he. Um, there was an article that. Uh, uh, I, my husband was probably aware of this. I wasn't. There was an article, uh, or a couple of articles that appeared in Beis Aaron B. Israel of Carlin Stolen. And on the other hand, um, uh, I don't know if any of your readers or your listeners are familiar with this because this is Israeli, it's in Hebrew, but he published in Tchumin, he published in Akdamot. Um, Tchumin uh, is the 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 uh, journal of Tzomet in Israel. Uh, these come from the world of Hezder. He also published in Tzion, which is an academic journal, uh, a highly prestigious academic journal of the Israel Historical Society. Um, I the the amazing thing is um, uh, that wherever that that his writings were accepted in all these places because he didn't come he didn't he didn't he because he was honest he wrote with unswerving integrity um as in, in people showed me things in Shiva that I hadn't known. Um, uh, apparently, he wrote in Yiddish. Um, in uh, he needed to learn a second language for his MA. So, what was he going to learn? He was going to learn French, or something. I don't know. So he learned Yiddish. Um, uh, that's what I meant before when I said he was basically sitting in the Torah world. The academic world was for him a tool. It was an important tool, but it was a tool. So he had the opportunity needed to learn a language. He learned Yiddish. Someone showed me Eiffel, which I'm not familiar with. Um, and um, after after the murder, the shock there, and the description is uh, 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 I don't remember the terms they use. It's Gavaldig or something. Um, uh, who was one of the Chavura? So I, I, I think that that I don't know anyone of, of his generation um, who had so broad an exposure. My own feeling is because he was a part of all of those worlds. That there was a part of him that was part of all of those worlds. 
Yeah, he definitely was, like we said, very, very unique in, in this regard, in many regards. So let, let's talk about this new Safer, this new book that you just published. So you mentioned before that he was bugs, was a big thing. And that's the, the first article in, in the book is what you permitted, we prohibited, the kosher status of strawberries. I mean, this comes from, I think it's from his Hebrew Safer, right? Lachem Yul Achli, has a whole Safer about bugs. Yeah. So, um, I mean... Maybe you want to talk about this, and he says other other things, and here he talks about the the waiting in between uh, the different have five six hours in between milk inflations. He talks about so you know why was these different first the bugs part, but then the other the other different halachic matters. I mean, what I don't know if you have to talk about that article and the safer of his that he wrote. Why was it he wrote a whole safer dedicated uh, to something like this? Uh Listen, I'm outside of my own comfort zone. I'll try to answer that question the best I can. Um, he had nothing against Humra, as long as you know the difference between Halacha and Humra. And he felt very strongly that the proliferation of um, technological institutes were pushing. Um, uh, we're, we're pushing, um, we're stretching motchimet gvulot michutz lahalacha, meiver lahalacha. He felt that they were stretching the lines beyond halacha. Um, so you have, if you read that first article, as I said, this is not my field of expertise. I, it's not something which I should properly be discussing, but I'll read you um, I'll, I'll read you a, um, a paragraph. Um, uh, one who is scrupulous about it, it, observance, uh, the Hebrew would be Makbi, uh, may ask, so what? Why not avoid chickpeas? He's talking about a heter that Maher Shach, Rav Shlomo Pluger, gave um, um, and it was brought by Rav El Yashiv. Um, uh, 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 for, I'll, I'll give you the background to the paragraph. I'll read an earlier paragraph. Uh, um, it was brought by Rav El Yashiv and by Rav Mordechai Brisk, wrote this girl on Zatzal. Maharshak is himself worthy of being relied upon, even when circumstances are not pressing. In other words, even when it's not Zatzal. Um, Maharshak permitted whole chickpeas when there was a substantial minority um, uh, for readers who are translating back into Hebrew, uh, that's a miut hamatzoi, um, which were infested by maggots with no external sign of infestation on several grounds. And he added that even if general, one should not rely on these rationales, only but the other. Nevertheless, in this case, there'd be no other way to eat chick chickpeas. Now I'm going to skip and read another paragraph. One who's scrupulous about observance may ask, so what? Why not avoid chickpeas? They're certainly not a staple food. Moreover, why did Maharshak define this as prohibiting the entire species? They could have made the effort to cut each pea in half and inspect it for infestation. And if it was not infested, they could eat it. This person would also have to ask why the Ramah writes in um, Yoridea Tzadivav at the end that in a place where the only radishes in the market were cut with knives of non-Jews, one may purchase them and rely on the view that permits them, but the edit after removing the place of the cut. Why couldn't they simply refrain from eating radishes? There's no existential need to eat radishes, so why not follow the basic halacha and say, the entire radish is forbidden. Um, after posing that question, you get to what uh, our son was about. There's tremendous year at Shemaim here. There's tremendous understanding of the halacha. And he says, um, uh, it surely is a great, great, a great act of piety and asceticism to refrain from eating anything questionable even after inspection. However, it's clear that such practice is not the black letter law 
and should not be applied to the public. And, and um, it's enough that we've found a reasonable, ex reasonable explanation for the practice of the disciples of prophets, uh, in other words, Am Yisrael. So if you read the paragraph, if, if I'm sorry, read the chapter carefully, you'll see that what he's distressed about is passing off a chumrah as the halacha and then demanding it of everybody. Um, and his feeling is that, that it's inappropriate to stretch the boundaries of halacha beyond halacha. His feeling was that um, the institutes which were doing the testing weren't publishing their results fully in such a way that a posseg could look at the results and could pass it according to halacha. And halacha didn't demand, doesn't demand uh, zero percent, percent infestation. The rest is there for you to read. And I hope I haven't uh, made mincemeat of a uh, of a chapter. If I have, forgive me. It's not the chapter; it's my description. Now let's talk about a chapter that you you translated because we'll talk later about different translators. But uh, chapter six, oh. wash, the history of washing before Kiddush, which comes from his Sefer Eish Tamid. Translation. Okay. That's an interesting uh, discussion there as well. He talks about the history of today. Everyone, everyone, people may be familiar that Yekis, so to speak, wash before Kiddush. But Yekis and the Hankins, Yekis and the Hankins. It's not a Yekish Minhag. It's Minhag Harama. The Rashba says he never. The Rashba was like the 12th century. He says he never saw anyone who didn't wash up before Kiddush. It's it's not even just the Ashkenazi. Rashba is in Spain. Yeah, no, that and that's what the article he talks about the history and he goes through that. It's a really interesting uh, an article. So, and then, it's an amazing thing because until you get to the nineteenth century, it is normative to wash up before kiddush. It's it's, it's the, the Ramasay cites this as the minhag pashut pashut as in widespread. Yeah. So now now flipping through the net, it's, net, it's not Beit Yosef's minhag. It's the Ramas minhag. Right. Now, the next part, so part two is studies in rabbinic history. So I'll just flip through. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll see what you want to talk about, just to give the listeners a sense of what's in the book. There's a chapter on Tubav and the dances uh, and, and the festival. As, as it's right in I, I'm just going to interrupt you. What that chapter is about is that, as I'll say, there weren't joyous days like Tubav and Yom Kippur when the unmarried girls would go out and dance in the vineyards and what... Our son asks, "Is what were they doing dancing in the vineyards on Yom Kippur?" He brings uh, this, this is one of the earliest articles that he wrote. He must have been around twenty-one at the time. Um, um, he 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 wants to know. It doesn't it doesn't make sense that they were dancing in the vineyards. Tuba okay, but dancing in the vineyards as a way of of marriages. Um, uh, coming about doesn't match what Yom Kippur is about. And so he figures, he, he brings all of the explanations of why they were dancing in the vineyards on Yom Kippur. And then he goes and he shows that they weren't dancing in the vineyards on Yom Kippur. They were dancing in the vineyards on Tuba. And suddenly the whole thing makes sense. Oh, I see. On Yom Kippur, they were doing what they're supposed to do on Yom Kippur. The next, the next chapter you already mentioned. I don't know if you want to talk about it more. Where he talk, goes through the whole uh, the Bruya story in Gemara and Zara. So that's that's something I'm sure many, many listeners are probably interested in reading about. Uh, he talks about Rabbi Kiva. There's another article on Rabbi Kiva. Um, and then, like I mentioned earlier, he also has I mean, there's other articles in Hebrew where he talks about the Balitaisis. But in here, there's an article reassessing the imprisonment of Rami Rotenberg and his ransom for burial. Famous uh, story that many are familiar with. So that that's something that he talks about, and then it jumps forward. There's a chapter on the Muster controversy. There's a there's a chapter on the Muster Yeshiva Navardic, 
Um, then there's this, there's the Orach Shulchan, and there's these. I think these articles are taken from the Orach Shulchan book that was published in uh, completely in Hebrew, right? Two, two chapters are taken from the Orach Shulchan book. Yeah, right. And that that book is is in Hebrew, which which I guess once we're at, I will mention here. Obviously, there'll be a link in the show's notes to purchase this book. I'll put a link also for the Orach Shulchan book. That's also available. I'll, uh, you know, that that one's in Hebrew. We'll mention the Orach Shulchan book is only in Hebrew, but this is in English. But I'll put it also in the show's notes as well. I'm going to give a plug for another book, um, which in years Hashem will um, uh, be appearing, I think, next week. We're, we're waiting for it. We're waiting for it to appear. It's a an expanded version of Lachem Yiyel Ochla, um, published now by Mossad Haraf Cook in Israel. And um, it's expanded because of, additional material we found on the computer. So I'm just mentioning that starting next week, Emir Tzashem will be available via Mossad Harav Cook and the booksellers in, if there are any booksellers who are listening in the United States, they'll be able to import it. Okay, so when if, if that's up, when I post the podcast episode, if that is available, I'll put a link to that. And if not, people, whenever anyone is listening to this in the future, hopefully it's available and they'll be able to uh, to check that out. Um, so, again, there's, there's many more articles in here that I can mention. I don't know if you wanted to talk about any of those ones that I mentioned over there. Is there any more that you want to say about these? Um, he also has zealotry versus tolerance in the old Yishuv. He talks about the relevant now, the Shemitah controversy, myths and facts. So he has a whole the, uh, article on Shemitah, more food for thought. Another is another article on Shemitah. I'll, I'll read you something since you mentioned Shemitah. I'll read you one paragraph, which we put on the book jacket. He, he, he writes this. The reader might ask himself, what's the upshot of all this? For or against the Heter Mechira? The question, that question is irrelevant to this discussion. The personal opinion of this writer as a matter of public halachic policy matters not a whit. Now I'm inserting parenthetically, he certainly had an opinion, but he's writing about his own opinion um, that it's irrelevant. The message here, as with the previous articles that I wrote on this topic is different. One must clarify the facts honestly to the fullest possible extent and be careful not to misrepresent them one way or another, consciously or otherwise, in order to buttress the desired outcome. This is what's occurred, sadly, in a great many of the materials that have been written and continue to be written on the topic of Shemitah. The real world tends by nature to be nuanced, for which reason the tendency to describe historical data as if they all, from beginning to end, support a specific contemporary position is a far cry from the pursuit of truth. Um, another. Uh, uh, famous passage uh, 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 that that he actually wrote. It, it's not published. It's something that uh, made its way around the internet after the murder was uh, in, in the correspondence that he had with uh, Rabbi Tzalo Dublitsky in Israel, in which he. Um, he's the the uh, person who runs Otsar HaChachma. And um, he wrote to, to Rav Blitzky, we all know that um, um, uh, when, after a person's 120, when he comes before based in Shalala, he'll be asked, Nasata v'natata be'amuna, were you honest in your business dealings? Did you set aside times to learn Torah? And what party did you vote for? Um, and um, I mean, that's that's him. What you're going to find in this whole book is something which is uh, highly original um, uh, with impeccable scholarship um with 
uh, a tremendous range of knowledge and which is not distorted in order to match one ideology or another. That doesn't mean that my son didn't have his own outlook. He certainly did. But um, he, uh, he, I mean, that may have to do, it may have to do with the fact that he was a Henkin. He had a very strong um, uh, identification via his great-grandfather with the Litfish communities. And on the other hand, he wore kippahs through that. Um, uh, you asked about the chapters in the book. Here, you take it to wherever you want to take it. No, if there's anything else you I to mention, I just wanted to list off for the listeners, and you can mention any other ones if you want. There's also a couple of a bunch of chapters on Rav Cook, and you mentioned the disappearance of Risa Harieli, and then the last two uh, chapters in the book are about uh, his great grandfather, right, Rav Yosef Leo Henkin, uh, from from New York. So there's uh, you know his on his background. So talk about uh, actually, yeah, that that's as well the last two, yeah. So um, and and yeah, it's over 400 pages. There's a lot a lot of material in here. Um, that was that was published. So, any of the art, any of the specific articles that you wanted to mention at all? Any other ones to the listeners? I'm a teacher, and sometimes the girls I teach ask me, you know, so so who's your favorite, Rashi or Ramban? And my answer is. When I teach Rashi, the answer is Rashi. When I teach Ramban, the answer is Ramban. When I'm uh, editing the Musar controversy, then it's the Musar controversy. And when I'm editing the article uh, about Rav Henkin and Rav Gorin, then it's that. Um, uh, I, uh, I can't say that... Um, I can't say that I have a favorite uh, a favorite article. Um, I uh, wait, I can say that um, I've learned a tremendous amount from each article. The story of this book is very interesting. It's, it, I'm not answering your question directly, but I'm telling you a different story and it has to do with the book. We didn't think of translating his articles into English. Never would have occurred to us. Um, I think after the Shloshim, we were phoned by a rabbi in the United States, um, someone whom we didn't know, and he asked our permission to organize um, translators, volunteer translators, to uh, translate to translate the book. Um, I'm sorry, to translate the articles. He, he explained to us that there were people in the United States who were uh, followers of our son's writing and that they felt very strongly that they wanted um, to make, they wanted to make the book, uh, they wanted to make a book of his articles in English. The person who called us Rabbi Moshe Rosenberg, Rabbi in Queens, someone I don't know. And uh, my husband said, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead and translate. Uh, the job turned out to be much harder than anyone bargained for, because in any one of his articles, my husband, my son wrote two articles. There was the article, and there were the footnotes, and the footnotes were a killer. Um, he had very uh, strict rules for himself of what goes in the article and what goes in the footnotes, and the footnotes. The footnotes are fascinating, and they give you so much history that you never you 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 never would have known. So, if someone looks at an article and says it's fifteen pages, I can do that, but they don't take into account that the footnotes are written in small print, and sometimes the footnotes are as long as the article. So, um, 
we owe a big debt to the um, uh, to the original translators. And I, I once we received their articles, I hope the translators will forgive me. I took liberty. Um, uh, I, I read through the Hebrew line by line with the translation and. Um, uh, there, there was a sterling quill in Hebrew, and I, um, I, I tried my best that the same should be in English. And uh, my husband, Zichron Olivecha, was still alive during uh, the much of the translation, and. I would ask him, he was ill at the time, but I would ask him, I would read him a sentence and ask him what he thought. And um, the ease with language is, is um, uh, ran in the family. Uh, I'm looking at the table of contents. I mean, I, the articles on historical revisionism are fascinating. Um, both sides of the story, the Khamedi side of the story, the national religious side of the story, uh, what happened to Jewish life and how the current streams emerge. And we, we sometimes think it was always the way it is today and it wasn't always the way it is today. Uh, those, are, those are amongst my favorites. Um, uh, I don't know. They're they're the um. Let me ask you one more thing. Article on strawberries is also a. Let me ask you. Let me let me jump in and ask you one more thing about you mentioned the, the translation. So first of all, I want to mention also, I don't know if you mentioned the uh, Rabbi Dr. Eliezer Brat was, I know, involved with this and he was involved with the Orch Shulchan book as well, right, with editing it. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. We never would have been able to do it without him. Um, after, after my daughter was able to open up the computer, we made copies. One of my sons then took the hard drive and um, removed all the personal parts of it. And we then gave over the hard drive um, uh, to two people. One of them was my son, who um, uh, organized uh, and made a list of what's on the hard drive and also uh, a friend, Rebos Blumen, um, um, also looked over the hard drive to see what was there. Uh, a friend of our families uh, sat with us. A lot of people came to visit us, not just during the Shiva, of course, um, um, then it was in the thousands, but uh, af afterwards sat with us and we spoke about what we were looking to do. And um, a friend of ours said, you're going to drown. You're never going to be able to handle the volume that's there. You need help. And this came from two directions at the same time. Um, uh, they both pointed to Rev. Eliezer Brat, and, um, and we had conversations with him. A friend of ours enabled him to be part of this project, and we had conversations and still do many times a day. And we're talking about the next safer, and we're debating which what the next safer should be. The next safer is going to be in Hebrew. Um, uh, I, 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 <laughs> it's if if Rav Eliezer has his way, the next safer is going to be about Rav Henkin, our son, the the uh, uh, the great Posek. Um Our son collected a tremendous amount of information about his uh, Alter Zaidi, and. Um, if I have my way, the next book is going to be an anthology, which is about three figures, not one, very different from each other. One of them will be um, Rav David Karliner, 
of David Friedman of Carlin. The other will be Rav Henkin, uh, Rav, well, by age, Rav Cook, and the third will be Rav Henkin. So we'll see who wins this battle. I don't know. Um, it, 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 Rav Bratz says to me, you can't do that because there's too much information about each one and there needs to be a monograph about each one. And I want to see the three together. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll see. Uh, the the uh, um, there's also what we're going to publish. Uh, we 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 have to figure out what we do with the halacha that we have. My husband was in favor of publishing the chidushim on Shulchan Aruch, but looking, we, we have to look it over. I don't know if there's enough to make up a book. And one more thing about, uh, you mentioned Rav Henkin, Rav Yosef Leo Henkin. So I know he was, your, your son Rav Eitan was very involved with Rav Daniel Asher Kleiman in editing and they put out Arachayim and Yeridea of Gvuras Elio. So uh, do you know, I mean, I don't, did, did your son Rav Eitan, did he work more on Cheshemish but Evan Ezer or was not, will those be published? I don't, I don't know if you know. No, 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 no. No, what they were doing um, together uh, uh, is, is well, well, let's let's go back a little before that. Rev. Daniel Kleinman um, sat with Rev. Shmuel Kamenetsky and and um, he heard many references to Rev. Henkin and he said, but no one knows who Rev. Henkin is. Where, where are his writings? And uh, the answer is Rev. Henkin was too busy with Ezra's Torah. Not just that, he didn't keep carbon copies of the thousands of Shiloh that he answered. Um, um, he, 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 um, uh, so there wasn't a, uh, a, a written legacy. There was a small written legacy, but not a large written legacy that's, that that encompassed the enormous volume of questions he was asked. So Rev Kleinman decided on his own with no connection with the family that he, he was going to collect um, and publish Chuvo of Rev Henkin. He started doing that and he discovered that there's a great grandson in Israel that he should speak to. And the two met. Um, Rav Kleinman had lived for a period of years in Eretz Israel, so they spoke together in Hebrew. My son, my son understood English, but he, uh, and in fact, he went to Poland once to lecture in an academic conference and he lectured in English and he thought uh, he, he was <laughs> concerned about that. He thought it was very funny that he was going to speak in English. Uh, but the two of them spoke together in Hebrew and they were collecting each one his own way, uh, whatever they could find of Rav Henkin's writings. But mostly they spent time on the phone together, sometimes every day, trying to decipher um, uh, trying to decipher and understand what Rev Henkin wrote because he wrote tersely, um, and Rav Eitan was a master at at deciphering. I mean, the the I I think um, he worked somewhat like my husband, which is that you have something in front of you, so you go look and you leave nothing unturned. Um, uh, my son had one up on my husband that he used the computer uh, uh, to access things in addition to using the library. But we have a very good, we have a very good library at home. And um, that's what Rav Eitam grew up on. And, um, and so... That's what he was doing together with Rav Kleinman. Basically, they worked together and they fit the pieces of the puzzle together. They figured things out together. Um, and you have to ask Rav Kleinman what the division of labor was, because I'm not sure. I know there's a lot of discussion together. And um, uh, it was a labor of love on my son's part. Thought it was a tremendous privilege.
Right. Okay. So those those two volumes are just uh, Svarim and the Svarim store and Archaim Yerdeya and and like mentioned in well, this. Well, hopefully, hopefully over the course of time, um, uh, the additional volumes on Evan Hazer and Choshen Mishpat will emerge. But um, for Rav Kleinman, it was a tremendous blow because the two of them were working together, and now certainly, suddenly he was left with working alone. He showed up at our shiva. It was very emotional. Um, uh, he came, he sat down. There, there were always so many people in the room. We didn't recognize people. Um, my husband had met him before. I hadn't met him. Um, so I turned to him and I asked him who he was. And um, he told us, and we were shocked that he had made the trip to Eretz Israel for the Shiva. <coughs> Excuse me. And he said, I lost the brother. Um, so the two of them were very close and worked very, very closely together. But I would also add, it's very interesting. There were a lot of people who consulted our son, this included professors, go, and, and I want to stress, history was rabbinic history, and it was totally secondary to sitting and learning halacha, and any, those who, who, who understood his gifts predicted that he was going to be a first-ranked posek. Um, um, but there's a paragraph here that I'd like to read to you as we're um, ending our conversation. Uh, this had to do with our, our I, I included this in my uh, preface. Um, I'll read you the paragraph. One characteristic illustration of our son's generosity of spirit was in correspondence shown to me by Rav Moshe David Chechik a Ben-Gurion professor who had, Ben-Gurion University professor who had headed two departments at the university was amongst the scores of scholars in touch with our son. This professor heard through the grapevine that our son was collecting documents relating to Mahariel Diskin, and he asked to see something. So, our son responded, and this is a quote um, that was shown to me. Truth be told, I felt more than a twinge when I received your request. The topic itself, um, the tension between traditionalism and modernity in Orthodox leaders, in particular those concerned, considered as zealots, is of much kanayim, is of much interest to me. And I have for several years been collecting material on the topic, though not methodically, and I've been planning to use this material for a full-scale article. Um, uh, you have here, um, I'll continue in a moment, but I'm just in, interpolating. Uh, this really was of, of interest, the tension between traditionalism and modernity in um, um, in, in Talmidei Chachamim. Um, okay, now I go back. Um, after he writes that he's been collecting material for several years. However, I don't find much benefit in kinat sofrim, academic jealousy. And as you are ahead of me and have already begun to write, the academic world will certainly benefit from your work as with your previous work. Therefore, I will be happy to send you the materials in my possession. Um, and then he adds that the professor doesn't need my bibli bibliographical assistance, but I'm appending a list of primary sources that had landed in my fishing net with good wishes to you for an excellent article. Wow, amazing. Um, so just one last question here as we, and like I said, I'll put the link in the show's notes. People can purchase the book. Obviously, this book will show you, you know, your son Ravetam's real, his 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 talent and uh, all his, his knowledge. But 
besides like we discussed, but besides for that, I mean, who would you say someone you know why what, you know not why should someone besides for those reasons what what else can someone gain from the book they should pick up the book to read? Well, it's fascinating. Um, it's. Um, uh, it, it's uh, it's a masterpiece. It's uh, um, it's wonderful to have this afternoon reading. I I know that the book on Arachasholchan here in Israel it was sold out during the first week of its printing. They printed two thousand copies and. By the end of one week, it was already um, it, it was already off the shelves. I um, why do I think people should read it for the this this same for the same reasons? It's it's unique. It's rare to find someone who's accepted by all the worlds. Your modern Orthodox, you can read this book and you can say, "Wow." You are Haredi, you read this book and you say, wow. It's a, a, it's a bestseller. It's, someone once said to me about two of my children, you know, they have the way of turning, they, they, the, the, way, the way they write, they turn the most boring subjects into fascinating uh, books that you can't put down. So I guess that's the reason you can. You, you, and some of these chapters are done it, but there's kedusha to this also. Um, uh, it's it's fascinating reading. Yeah, real, real like fascinating topics, and he was obviously a, a, a real, a really fascinating and extremely knowledgeable person. And uh, hopefully that comes through in the book. And uh, we look forward to further writings and, and, and books and things coming out from him that you'll be uh, publishing. And thank you for joining me to discuss him and the book. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. <laughs>